Hey, this is Cole. Hey, this is Justine. And this is just a quick disclaimer that I'm recording off of my motherfucking iPhone. Um, hey, we talk a lot. We talk about a lot of different things in this podcast, a lot of different topics. And because of that, I have scheduled Chicago Kush for a follow-up podcast. So if anything comes up that you have questions about, anything at all, um, send us an email. If you want to know what our email is, just look in the description of this podcast or type in chili at chillinois.net. I don't know why I had to be vague about it. <laughs> C-H-I-L-L-I at chillinois.net. And we can, um, we can you know, take your questions down and ask them. So we're having a follow-up conversation with the folks at Chicago Kush on March 13th. So get us your question in, questions in before then. I hope you enjoy the episode. He went to Northwestern and Johns Hopkins. Is that good enough for you? No, it's not. Well, Brennan, those are very prestigious schools. I smoked pot with Johnny Hopkins. It has been a long week. Yeah, I think we said that yesterday, too. It has been a long week. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. All right. Well, we're coming back at you with uh, another episode of this fine and dandy podcast. Mm -hmm. Smoking on some Chicago Kush again. We've been blowing through this shit. It's really good stuff. And, uh, you know, it's pretty exciting. We're actually joined uh, by the folks that uh, cultivate this fine flower with love. Um Fabian and Sal. We're joined by Fabian and Sal. Guys, welcome to the Chillinois podcast. Hey, Cole. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Cole. We're excited to be here. Yeah. Guys, give us a little bit of an introduction to, you know, what you guys are doing, where we can find you online, and an introduction as to who you are as well, (laughs) you know. so Sure. We got Fabian and Sal here. This is uh, me, Sal, speaking. Uh, I'm the cultivator and uh, founder of Chicago Kush. Um, I'm a Chicago native, and I'm really proud to be. Really proud to be. But I relocated to California almost a decade ago to acquire genetics, to master master cultivation techniques, and to really dive into the cannabis industry before uh, majority of people have, um, which seems to be the case at this time. So. We went out to California that long ago and we've had great success, great successes. We managed a retail store uh, named LAX CC, which is still in operation right by the airport. And uh, I also cultivated on the medical side of things before cannabis was legal in California. So things were very interesting and very risky and uh, uh, there was a lot of hardships and a lot of speed bumps that we've, we've dealt with in, uh, in learning, th- in learning this industry, you know, so long ago. And, uh, but we were able to acquire the seventh indoor licensed in California. So we were one of the first in California that finally were able to get licensed once it's legalized. So we've overcome major hurdles and we've had great accomplishments and, uh, out here in California, but the main intention was always to bring everything from here back to Chicago, to my hometown. 
bring everybody these wonderful genetics, these cultivation techniques, and just really, really high-end product that the people of Illinois really deserve. Yeah, so um, on, on our end with uh, Chicago Kush, you know, I, um, I handle everything really related to compliance and our legal work. I, I'm an attorney. Um, you know, my, my background is a little bit more interesting in the sense that, you know, I, I've kind of been always on the side of the law, I guess, before I, I, I kind of started getting more serious into the cannabis work. Um, I was a police officer for some time before going to law school and becoming a lawyer. Whoa, and whoa, whoa. Um, we're smoking with a cop right now. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I don't mean to cut That's you off. Yes. I just had to make the joke. <laughs> oh, I, I yes. love it. I love it. You know, but but it, it's um, even even I think that experience for me um, was essential to seeing firsthand just how how the how easily people could be abused within a system of what I believe is like a unjustly created criminal apparatus and and more importantly what i loved about it what was my ability to have discretion and to give people chances to, to overlook things um because there was a lot of things that i necessarily did not agree with cannabis being one of one of them because there are many um and you know so I, I went from there into law school and i've always had that passion for cannabis you know um it's I was a, a, a tent grower and doing all that type of stuff. And in, in law school, especially for me, cannabis was essential to maintaining my mental health. Um, it still is. And, um, you know, I, I still loved everything about cannabis. So every opportunity I got, I was trying to take, you know, continuing education credits and always trying to put myself out there to find the work and, uh, you know, things, things worked out and, you know, I got connected to sell and, you know, we, we came together as a team and, you know, we really aligned I think an ideology for what we wanted, not just in the fact that, you know, as someone who is a, a consumer and um, just a lover of all things cannabis, I truly believe in sales product. Um, it's, it's honestly to me, you know, the best product I've ever had myself. Um, and it's in addition to the fact that Sal and I came eye to eye on where we saw the importance of, you know, social equity and trying to really make sure that we create a business that is focused on trying to play a better role in righting the wrongs from the war on drugs in creating a more equitable industry. Uh, because we both firmly agree that if you are trying to come into the cannabis market, the legal cannabis scene, and it is not a priority for your business to talk about the lack of equity in the industry, and you're not doing something to try to at least improve that or bring awareness then I feel like you're doing a disservice to the rich history and culture of cannabis. And when we really connected on that point, I knew that, you know, Sal was without a doubt, not only he's not been just a great partner, but a great friend. And, um, you know, being able to have someone like-minded like that and, you know, learning from him and being able to do what I do and building out our applications and helping secure real estate, all those different things. It was kind of the, the meshing, I think, of uh, two perfect minds. And we just... You know, we really just we're trying to, I think, get into this industry to effectuate positive change and to bring sell home so he can he can produce what I believe to be some of the finest flower this state deserves to have. Right. And not only bring sell home, but I would Sal and uh, Fabian, correct me both. You guys both correct me if I'm wrong. Um, you're not only trying to bring him home 
his skill set home, which by fucking God, we just smoked two hits of this shit and uh, we're in space. So the skill set's there, I just have to say. Um, and I have been talking about this product for quite a while, but you're not only trying to bring him home, his skill set home, but I think you're bringing like those values that you guys created in California home. Uh, and by that, I mean, you know, you, you guys employ... Uh, or work with rather, uh, you know, folks that that need to be helped out. It's not a bunch of, I'm just going to be blunt, white dudes like it is yeah. at some of these companies. You know what I mean? Yeah. Let me elaborate a little bit on where our license facility is. And uh, the license facility I operate currently is in the city of Coachella, California, which I'm sure many people have heard of this area here. <laughs> but with a lot, right? <laughs> right. Coachella was one of the first towns to open zoning during the licensing process, during the legalization. And so we came out here for that reason. And I'm very happy we did. Once we were able to acquire our license, we had to source uh, uh, local employees and just become really accustomed with the, with the neighborhood uh, and with the people in it. And over the time, we've met so many wonderful people, so many friends. And we've been able to we've been able to provide amazing opportunities for the people of this town that really didn't have too much opportunity um, for the longest time. And so when we brought cannabis into this town, um, it really sparked something something special. Um, we were able to provide great employment, you know, for our, for our gardeners, for trimmers, for packagers. We're able to teach these people um, who came in knowing very little, zero about cannabis. We're able to teach them skills in different departments, such as manufacturing, distribution, cultivation, nursery department, et cetera, and teach them a handful of skills and, and, and train them to become actual tradesmen in this field. And something that they're really, really proud to be, something to where they show up to work every day and they're getting paid well and there's plenty of camaraderie and everyone's happy. And everyone's on the same team and everyone's really proud to be part of something um, and really happy to be right where they're at. Um, it, it, that's, that's the biggest, biggest thing for us is, is that we were able to bring so much happiness out of this group and really getting our feet wet with that. Um, we really want to take it to a bigger level and we want to continue to do these great things and continue to do a lot of uh, great things for people and bring happiness into their lives via cannabis and uh, we intend on replicating this in our hometown of Chicago and our home state of Illinois. That's exciting shit. That's exciting shit, boys. Um, so I guess, you know, um, just to be clear, folks, uh, and Fabian, maybe you, you can jump in here because I saw I was going to try to sound smart and read off of one of your Instagram posts, but that would be using your words. And um, uh, you could probably say it better. Um, but I saw that, you know, apparently your building uh, is within Illinois is, is sitting. It's zoned, permitted, signed off. I mean, by all means, yeah. like you guys say, it's ready to rock. Yeah, it, it, that it, it's there. I mean, that's, you know, that and that was the thing is that I think, um, you know, from a lot of people who are kind of outside the cannabis scene, um, I feel like they don't understand to like, you know, with all of the things going on around the current lottery for dispensary, for example, and, and the craft cultivation license, you know, I think that um, 
a lot of people don't appreciate maybe why so many are upset about this because getting through that process was a tremendous amount of work. And like, I, I think about this and I reflect on this so much because as somebody who is privileged and was fortunate enough to have access to the resources needed, it was still hard. I'm, I'm an attorney by trade. I, you know, I know how to do a lot of this work. I was able to do it myself, almost all of it. We knew the right people in the security cannabis scene, different things like that. But even if so, it was still really tough and, and getting a municipality who would agree to have you have a commercial space in their community and to figure out what the zoning laws were. And some people weren't addressing craft cultivation yet. So you were looking at municipalities that maybe haven't even thought about it. There's so many moving parts. And for people to get through all of that, make it to the finish line and submit an application only to feel as if the entire process was a farce is it's hurtful. Um, and it's, it's disencouraging for something that was supposed to be so centrally focused on creating equity within the Illinois cannabis industry. Um, yeah. And so, you know, just, just kind of going off of that and talking about, you know, being zoned and being permitted and doing everything that we were supposed to do. Um, and now, and, and it hurt us now because we're still, we still had to worry about holding onto that building and losing it. And it's just, you know, it, it's a lot. And you're and, probably you know, paying the bills for mm -hmm. the property that's not reaping any benefit, <laughs> you know? We have dished out tremendous amount of money at this point uh, to keep us going at this, uh, at this point in time. Um, yes, it has been very costly to get us to this point. You know what? Uh, we were t was it with Mike Fouché that we were talking about? I read an article that said, and look, I'm not trying to make you guys say anything about anybody that's operating, though we will get into some conversations about the product uh, that we've seen and, and that you know we've shared or whatever. Um, you know, it, It's just interesting to me and maybe a little bit coincidental that a year ago, uh, the MSOs, the current operators, um, you know, I don't need, mean to refer to them all as multi-state operators because I'm not sure if that fact is true, but most of them are. Um, so anyways, though, the current license holders, the people that are currently operating a year ago said not only that they'd be able to handle the supply and demand of the um, adult use market, which turned out to not be true at all. And, and normal, in fact, had studied had published multiple studies that indicated that that wouldn't go that way. And then of course the uh, current license holders came out with their own studies and Pamela Altoff from the, uh, I can't even remember what association she's from right now off the top of my head because this Chicago Kush is dank. But anyways, uh, <laughs> I just think guys to remark, to get to my point, isn't it a little coincidental that, that the current license holders asked and were demanding for a year of no competition on the adult use market? And what do they have right now? What have they got? Well, They've had a year of no competition. Oh, yeah. You know, but the, the, the interesting thing that I always think about is um, the, the outcomes that we see within systems, I truly believe, like, the that whatever we see like that's that's the intended outcome even if we thought like oh well hey you know look at the canada's bill for example we look at that and we said oh on surfacely we thought this was about social equity and then in reality when you look at it you realize oh wait there was all these loopholes these gray areas that were put there intentionally like i i, I can't help but believe that when this was being drafted that there were groups of true social equity applicants lobbying for a provision that allows you to qualify as social equity because you have enough money to hire 10 people and just keep them on payroll, right? That was created for individuals who have a large amount of wealth and presumably more connected into the industry. 
Um, and, and that's just by way of one example. But like what we see right now, as it relates even to all the pending lawsuits, and I mean, this was, it was an inevitability. And I, I think that this is exactly what they wanted. And this is the law was drafted the way it was for this to this exact outcome to happen. Um, and, you know, hopefully that gets fixed moving forward. Most definitely. Hey, Cole, I also do have one more thought that I would like to share about Chicago Kush that I would like everyone to know. It's very important. Chicago Kush, we feel is the original designer cannabis company from Illinois, from Chicago. Our product we consider designer is the genetics we breed, the genetics we've had. It's far different from anything the MSOs, the big corporations will have. The corporations, they do commercial cannabis. They don't do designer cannabis. That's the difference. That's what Illinois is lacking. That's what Illinois needs. And that's what we're going to here to bring. We're going to bring real OG to Illinois. And we're going to bring a variety of high-end exotic. It's personally bred by us in-house and ones that we've acquired over so many years. And we look forward to bringing a very high-end boutique designer cannabis product to Illinois. Hell yeah. Let's jump it, jump into one of the topics we've discussed and something that I've, uh, I've personally tried to report on as much as I can. I say report. I'm not a fucking reporter. I just have an Instagram account and a, a couple of mics. I always try to say that guys, you could do this too. Um, and if you ever <laughs> want to come on the podcast, I'd love to have you on and help you do whatever you want to do. It's all about giving gain in this industry. And anyways, uh, one of the things I share uh, and I'm not afraid to share is when we have problems with Illinois product. Um, there's actually been a few pictures this week on the IL trees subreddit um, of some really bad product. There was a picture of some product with soil in it. Uh, it was Rollins from Cresco labs. Uh, it had soil in the shake. Uh, so I'm sure that smoked well. Um, we've yeah, seen, we... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, you don't want to pay for that. <laughs> yeah um, we've seen uh verano i'm gonna name these people you guys don't have to respond to any of these because i'm just naming them because i don't give a fuck uh right. you know these are this is something that happened verano posted on their instagram page they've since taken it down but i've got it up on my instagram page so follow us on chillinois podcast at instagram um they've they were you know showing their grow and showing how great it was and showing how many bugs they had in their grow. <laughs> they didn't realize, I don't, I mean, I don't think, I don't know why they would have published that picture by choice. Uh, there was a obvious mite problem and a huge fungus gnat problems. Justine knows I know a fungus gnat from a mile of fucking way. I've had a, I've had, you know, pests, pests are inevitable, Sal. You, you can maybe speak on this, but to, to the extent that it's gotten this out of control, can you comment on that? Like that seemed out yeah. of fucking control. Absolutely. I don't want to say all, but a very high majority of cultivators that are currently cultivating in Illinois do not own the experience that it takes to produce high-end product. They don't, they don't have the experience, not even close. If they did, you would see it in the product. As simple as that. The product would look amazing. It would smell amazing. It would taste amazing. It would compete with Oregon. It would compete with California, but it, it does not. I'll put it in perspective. I'll put it in perspective for you. Everything I've seen on the rec market in Illinois, if that was sold by the pound in California, 
on average, that stuff would get five, six, seven hundred, eight hundred bucks a pound at best. Where we're AAA exotic and OG stuff like that. You have a brand. If it's really high in product, wholesale could go for three, four thousand a pound. So the product wouldn't even their product would not even compete here in California. It would it would it would be honestly next to thrown in the garbage. Honest to God. And you know, so it shows that the experience of these cultivators is just not there. It's not even close. The fact that a major corporation with millions, hundreds of millions of backing could post a picture of their garden and be absolutely clueless of the, of, of the multitude of issues going on with that garden is very scary because these people have control of a major, major piece of the market. And what they're doing is pushing out very low end product, which people are forced to buy. There's a shortage as we speak. And so people are definitely forced to buy this low end product unless they want to refer to other sources like the traditional market, which the whole point of legalization was to combat the traditional market. But as we call it, our legacy providers. <laughs> right. But if the product is much better on the traditional market, where are the consumers forced to go or where are they going to go? Right. We would like to bring the very, very high end product to the recreational market, to the legal market. We've been doing this for so long. We don't want to be on the traditional side. We don't want to be in the old days. We were on the medical side, quote unquote. We don't want to run from the police anymore. We don't want to hide. We want to be in the light and we want to do we want to we want to create these opportunities for people to legally legally do this to legally produce high-end product um so a big goal for us was to get licensed was to achieve our licensing that way there's longevity in this that way we wouldn't wind up in jail or we wouldn't wind up uh you know jobless or who knows that we could do this our passion our love that we've been doing for so long we could carry this into a long-term profession and share and pass this on with others legally. So right. I, licensing I am, is everything for us. I'm willing to argue and Fabian, I feel like you'd be the one, the one quickest one to jump in maybe on me on this, but I'm willing to argue that this limited licensed approach that Illinois is taking, look, I, there's a middle ground and I think we're just a little bit under it. That's, I guess what I'm trying to say. Um, it's like, um, when you, it's like a, it's like almost a carryover pro, prohibition. It's like they're like prohibiting competition. Like you say, these people right. are having to go um, into the black market, which we'll talk about testing and everything. But but look, uh, the whole thing about is if you if you can't access a clean and regulated and trustworthy product, uh, that's that it's also affordable. Like, sorry. It's really frustrating when you go to an Illinois dispensary and you spend 70 to $80 on a fucking eighth that's shit. And when people yep. have that experience, they say, fuck that. I'm going to my guy, Bob, which Bob may be a great guy, but guess what Bob doesn't have? A fucking lab that tests. And again, we'll get back to testing. We put a little, maybe a little bit too much comfort in testing. Um, but, but like you say, it's like you're, you're pushing people away. Now, Sal, can I have you you know, elaborate and you don't have to name names. I'm not asking sure. you to point out a product or anything. 
Um, but can you elaborate like a little bit more on how the product does not compete? Cause I agree with you. It, yes. Like when I get it, let me put it this way, Sal, and then I'm going to let you go. Uh, what I, what I like when I get it, I found if, if I buy flour from Illinois, which after some of the things I've found out, I don't, I just don't do anymore. I grow my own cause I know what goes into it. But anyways, um, like when I get it, I have to put it into a container with a Boveda packet, uh, to try to like, it's always so fucking dirt dry. And after like three weeks, it'll start to moisten up and you'll get a little bit of flavor out of it. But I feel like it's not close to what it could be, should be if they knew what the fuck they were doing. And so can you just elaborate a little bit on how, because this is the thing people are going to say, like people are going to say, you know, I've, I've, I've smoked some good weed in Illinois and I'm not saying folks, you didn't get high, but you like when you go to other markets, like we've gone to Colorado uh, we've had a taste of California, you know, we've had Oregon. It just is different. It's like, oh, that's what terpenes are. So can you, sorry for just keep, sorry that I keep going. I, when I, when I'm high, I talk, but can you elaborate on how Illinois product does not compete um, in your opinion? Yeah, yeah, I can. And it, and it is, it is, it is very complicated. It is complicated. It is lengthy because anything that is, well, anything that's, anything that is done, any little thing that, could negatively hurt the plant itself will bring the quality down. Anything you miss one watering, the quality just went overall quality just went down. Right? So I'll try to simply explain why the qualities are a little bit lower in Illinois and it does fall on the cultivators. Um, it falls on the, obviously the operators who hire these cultivators. Um, it's, it comes down from day one, from, from the very beginning genetics is where it starts. We have acquired our genetics over the years from all over California. And we've taken these genetics and we personally have done selective breeding. So half of the products that we, 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 we distribute, uh, those genetics were personally bred by us. We've created these plants. They don't exist anywhere else on the earth. So genetics is, is a very, very important starting point. The quality. But then everything after that really plays 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 a, a huge part of it from the second you plant that clone every day has to be perfect in that plant's life to ensure quality that's every single day from the day that clone is planted until the day that the last trimmer trims clips the last leaf off that bud from start to finish it has to be perfect and in the middle for these plants to perform at such a high level there, there are strategies that we've developed over years and years and years and years that the MSOs have been trying to replicate or copy. They didn't create indoor cultivation. Indoor cultivation was created for one reason. We, we cultivated indoors because we simply had to hide from law enforcement and from thieves. If not, we would have set up farms of hoop houses, light that greenhouse, and grown all day long. In those days, we had to grow medically for our dispensaries. There was no licenses. So the only way that we could cultivate for our stores without getting arrested or robbed was to bring our plants indoors and hide them in warehouses and places where you would never suspect cultivation happening. 
And that's how the whole thing started. That's how indoor cultivation started. So from there, we've developed techniques. What, what, what attributes to qualities? Irrigation techniques, drying techniques, curing techniques, plant training techniques, of course, genetics, different media. I mean, every different specification that goes into it was a system that's be create, that has been created off our experience. Have we made these mistakes that all these MSOs are making now and all these operators? Of course we have. That's how we've learned to deal and, rem and, and rectify these things. We've already been through all of these issues. Years ago, we've been through this. We are light years past what the operators are currently dealing with right now. So that's why if you, you see product coming out of an eighth jar in a dispensary, um, and it's super, super low grade. I mean, they're just, they haven't caught, they haven't caught up. They have such a long way to go to compete with the high qualities of the world, California, Oregon. That was the big thing why we went to California. So we could be boots on the ground every single day, seven days a week, morning until night cultivating to really learn and develop these systems and acquire these genetics. And so there, it's so detailed what goes into high quality. There's so many different moving parts, working parts. And these current operators, they have a long, long, long way to go. Do not expect the qualities to improve overnight. That's why we are a firm believer that someone like us uh, should, uh, should be licensed. To, to add to what Sal said, I think it kind of comes back full circle on what we uh, talked about when we first, um, you know, started this podcast was that, you know, the reason more than likely also why these large cultivators are suffering these issues, as Sal said, he talks about the farmers and that falls on the operators, but I don't think it's a big secret that, you know, MSOs have not been treating their staff the best. Um, you know, I think that uh, anyone who's kind of tuned into the cannabis scene knows that there's different types of movements in, on, on the front of unionization taking place. And you've got a lot of issues that seem to get unaddressed um, as it relates to employment issues. And, um, you know, I think because of that, you know, and that's why we always keep talking about how we want to create an environment where everybody loves coming to work every day, where they feel rewarded for it, the fruits of their labor. And, you know, that's just not happening. So how are you going to retain and get the best talent? How are you going to get the best growers or the, the people with this industry experience? Um, you know, if, if you're not willing to actually show that you value your employees. And so it's just another representation of like the, the, the mindset, I think of just unfortunately based at least on the product that we see of a lot of the larger companies that I see out there is not on what can I get the best product, you know, to, to, individuals out there, you know, but rather, you know, can I make the best marketing to, to push this okay product? Cause I'll tell you one thing, like when I walk into some dispensaries and I see products, I'm like, it looks really nice. Like I could see why people might buy that, but it's like, it's, you know, it's a wolf in sheep's clothing because then you get the product itself and it's like, Oh, right. Packaging may look really nice. Right. And that's important as well. But the, uh, the end product is where it matters. For sure. Um, yeah, I think, you know, obviously this isn't something that you guys can help at all, but one thing that Illinois is definitely doing wrong right now um, is, is uh, 
you know, you can't see your product beforehand. And I mean, I guess there's, there's maybe one way that you guys could help out like, uh, you know, or at least an approach that some cultivators have taken, they put like a small product window on it. And, and at least for me, whenever I go to the dispensary, I always demand to see the product because uh, before I pay for it, because if that's all I can see, it's like, okay, you know, um, but, but yeah, anyways, uh, not to get, not to get down that road um, to, to jump back to something we were talking about, you know? Um, yeah. Have you guys, I guess, ever seen any other signs of, uh, either pests in weed or like you say uh, just bad methodologies like I mean I was talking to some people and it depends on the batch and the product but sometimes you see these products um, and that people will share labels with me where like the turnaround is, is nuts it's like they only cured it or sorry uh, it's like it was harvested this date and then it was uh, cured and packaged like a week or two later you know and, and like um, I don't know everything when it comes down to that because I grow on a really small scale, but to me, uh, and look, I'm speaking way out of base, but to me, that's like maybe something like they're cryogenically freezing it, which is, you know, like why the product is maybe so bone dry. Um, cause they're just kind of fucking up the most important part, arguably of the cultivation process, which is the cure. Yes. I can elaborate a little bit if you'd like. Sure. So when it comes to uh, uh, preserving quality after the product is finished, after the plant is grown, preserving quality, a whole nother process begins after the plant is grown. Now, the, these huge commercial growers, these MSOs, it's, their, their, their concept is it's, it's everything matters to the bottom dollar. The dollar is what matters. Not really the, the, the quality of the product or how happy their employee is. They have shareholders that they need to make happy. They have investors that they have to please. It's all about the bottom dollar when it comes to those, those concepts, those visions. So when it comes to post, post-processing or post-harvest, a lot of these methods are very commercial-based as far as drying goes, for example. Right. Some companies will freeze-dry or they will speed-dry. They will quick-dry. Five days, it's, it's trimmed in a bag. Oh, by the way, then it's put into a machine trimmer and it's, and it's trimmed by a tumbler in a vacuum. Uh, and, and then it's placed into a, a packaging machine. And then it goes into the, by, by that point, every single resin head on that flower has bursted or ruptured or broken off. And you have a rounded nugget of very low grade product. And so you could grow the best, the best product in the world. But if your post harvest methods are commercialized or they're not proper you would destroy that product so but it's not grown right on the front and it's not uh processed properly on the back um so these companies do do a lot of these 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 commercial processes trim machines uh fast quick quick drying um uh, wet trimming all processes very have you ever heard of uh, spraying, like them spraying it down? Like if they, because like I said, that one example of uh, there was like a pest inside of the weed, which like makes me think like they just like missed it or something. And sometimes the weed, I don't know if it's because of what you just said, it being machine trimmed and tumbled. It just looks really weird. Like it, like I grow my own and my my nugs look the way they're supposed to. And I, the, the way I phrase it is pornographic. I just right. <laughs> I look at it and I'm like, ooh, you know, but it's so weird. Um, and so do you, I mean, 
what do you think? Is it the machine trim? Because that's another thing. I so now that you it, say that, that com- explains metal being in my weed one time. A fucking machine. Well, there you trimmer. go. A machine trimmer, a packaging machine. Who, you know, who knows where that metal came from? But, but from a machine, and obviously went right past quality control, which should be on the back end before our final seals put on any pa- any any product. Um, but uh, yes, if there is a bug, one bug in your product, that means that that garden has had an infestation. Obviously, right? Right. Um, no one likes bug. No one likes contaminated product, whether if, if it's from a pest being in it, um, uh, you know, whether those flowers were sprayed with pesticide, approved or not approved. Regardless, uh, flowers should never be sprayed. I mean, and it's done all the time. Uh, it just really leads to it, even though it, it may pass a lab screening, uh, it just leads to a very, very low end product. Yeah, and that brings us back around to the lab conversation and and fabian maybe you can uh speak on this like what do you think about the like like people put a lot into lab testing right yeah no absolutely i think um you know we, we were talking about this and one of the things that always comes to mind for me is um you know just the idea of thc content and uh i feel like that's become such a centralized focus and I think to a certain extent, I under I understand that from um, you know the development of the medicinal days and understanding the the strength of the product you have. Um, but I think over time we've also come to learn, and as we continue to learn, that um, cannabis is significantly more complex. And I mean, it's a beautiful plant for that very reason. Um, and there's a lot more going on in terms of um, you know the contents of the plant that we'd want to know about. Um, you know, speaking specifically, you know, especially to the development and research on terpenes and stuff like that. But, you know, because of that centralized focus on THC content, I've, I always just, I think of an ancillary to like alcohol and I'm just like, well, it's people seem to be motivated by higher THC content, but you wouldn't do that necessarily, um, you know, with alcohol. I don't run to the liquor store and get Bacardi 151 rum, um, you know, be, <laughs> as my, my choice of preference. Um, and so I just, you know, I, I find that interesting and it's, um, you know, it, and that's just one aspect because of course, as it relates to labeling, um, it's a question that I've always had too, is just, you know, how or why were these things, you know, determined to be the things that should be on the label? Like, and those, I think that, you know, I can it's interesting. A bit on that. Yeah. I can elaborate a little bit on that. Yeah. I mean, these are uh, these these guidelines, right? They 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 fall they generally fall in line with you know the Department of, of Agriculture or the Department of Food of Food and Safety or the Department of Health, uh, whether it's the state of California or the state of Illinois, um, with current you know cur- current cultivation measures now you know when it comes to food production etc. So these are uh, these guidelines fall in conjunction with 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 those guidelines, and uh, I I I agree, I do agree I agree with them. Uh, lab screening is important. It's very important. Um, and I believe it does a, overall, it does a great job as far as, uh, protecting the consumer from a product that is extremely harmful for you. Um, so I think the, the lab testing is very important, but does it determine quality? The answer is absolutely not. Right. Well, and to, to just wrap around to what you were just saying, some of these sprays like the, okay so there's certain things like there's pesticides there's sprays uh that are approved and by right. that i mean you're gonna pass pass lab testing now look right. 
shit happens right um but like you say um you know, with some of these companies, what I think we're seeing is, you know, you got these huge harvests and problems may come up and they use commercialized techniques to correct those problems because they have shareholders to report to, you know, they don't really care about the product of the, the quality of the product rather. Um, yeah, exactly. Like for example, these people that have posted these pictures that are clueless that an infestation is lying right in the background. Right. When it comes down to time to cut that, that crop down, you know, and there's an infestation of bugs, these people aren't just going to say, oh, oh, well, we're going to throw it in the garbage and try it again. No, 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 they're not going to do that. What they're going to do is spray the lights out. They're going to they're going to spray these plants down. They're going to clean them up. They're going to spray them down and then they're going to harvest and process them. And yes, yeah, they'll pass lab testing. But again, the, quali the, the quality will be so, so low, so low. So technically, right. you can the day the day you harvest the day you harvest, you could soak the whole garden down. You could soak the whole place down, then harvest, then pass the lab test. Right. right. The reason why that's so bad, right? Even though that these are approved pesticides or an, an approved product, that doesn't mean that you should be consuming it, or that doesn't mean that that these operators should be, should be doing that, you know, just cause they can get away with it. Doesn't mean you should get away with it or you should do it, you know? Right. Well, and that's, so. that's kind of what I meant. And I feel like I phrased it roughly when we started this conversation, I said, people put a lot into cannabis testing. I meant to say people put a lot of faith into like the tests that we see. And like you say, the tests, me basically are you know uh certain like you, you usually see five about five uh report reported levels on a jar of course we know there's about uh, now at least we know there's about 120 cannabinoids so apparently we're choosing five that are very important um, but anyways uh uh not only that um this is just indic indicative of a like you're passing standards like you like these thing it doesn't seem you did these things like there's not metals there's not this there's not that it's not a quality report it's not right? a quality report correct it is not a quality report that is correct okay yeah i just wanted to to make sure we made made you know the point of that discussion very clear right um because it's just general, again general, oh sorry i yeah, was just, just gonna say again we're not like bashing on testing it there's uh Oh no, I'm a big fan of testing. No, it's sure. there for a reason. It truly is. Yeah, it truly is. And as far as how 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 strict the testing is, uh, I believe those guidelines are really adequate. Uh, I'm a I'm a big supporter, and I think those guidelines are really adequate. But that's not saying that the cultivators uh, are 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 able to do things that they shouldn't. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean it's it's a matter of if they can not a matter of if it's the right thing to do is if it's the right thing. way if it's the right way to cultivate or not exactly yeah yeah heard you on that heard you on that and i you know if you but, if you see that flower i don't know just the scary thought now here let's make it even more scary right i would be willing to bet and i'm not asking you guys to like agree with me or throw any money on the table but um uh, i'd be willing to bet that like 
the products that are uh, infused, like edibles, drinks, concentrates, yeah. they use that flower that looks real bad after a spray or after whatever they have to do to make what? it pass. And and it, that what I mean by that's scary is because you just see the candy bar. You yeah, don't right. see the, the weed that went into it. You know right. I mean? Well, you see the good marketing. Yeah, good yeah. marketing. It, bec- it becomes to, to produce edibles and stuff like that. It becomes even even easier for these companies. Uh, they'll they'll run whatever trim, whatever bad product, whatever material they have. They'll run it and refine it into distillate, and simply infuse that distillate into their product. Um, so that is a uh, it is a pretty standard uh, way of infusing this day and age. Um, however, we always believe in high quality input material, always. Uh, so that's how that process is done. Gotcha. So, um, let's see, let's see. So, you know, one of the things, have you got like, again, I'm not asking you to name names, but like, there's a lot of hats in the ring and I'm sure you're, you know, who you're playing ball with. I know, I'm sure you know who you're playing ball with. And by that, I mean, I'm sure you know who else is applying. Did, does anybody else that is like again i'm not asking you to name names of losers winners or anything else but like what what do you think about the application pool do the people know what they're doing with regard to that like you because i know that there's a lot that goes into the application like there's a security plan you got to come up with estimates for like how much water you're going to use energy you're going to use and i mean yeah, obviously the, uh, you've been doing that for years so you know the, the weight of uh the the, the stems that you're going to have to dispose of Really? So, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Tell us some. Tell us about some of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think um, Sal can certainly elaborate on this, but what I can say is, as far as what I've seen, I've seen so far, um, you know, because I was curious and I did the research and I just wanted to see, you know, I told myself, all right, well, if you are competitive in craft cultivation, then presumably that means you got zoning approval, and those are all public records, and so. I just backtracked all of those and looked for anyone who got cannabis zoning approval and started just looking at their company layouts, broke it down, Sal and I studied it Um, because we were just curious um, in part too, because if I identified people that look like they align with their ideas, like I'd want to connect with them, you know, if we can help each other, um, you know, break that initial barrier. I think um, Sal and I are all for that. And um, there has been other craft growers we've connected with and it's been phenomenal. Um, but, you know, the list was certainly, I think, also telling of, you know, some some of the industry insiders who won a dispensary were in there. Um, you know, there's there's also, you know, individuals in there that n- nobody on their list had any form of cultivation experience. Um, and, you know, you could tell also based on locations that people chose to get that, you know, if they're getting a space that's significantly smaller than you know what the allotted flowering space is and what it can be built up to um you know you kind of you you can recognize that maybe they don't fully understand um you know what they need to scale um you know especially as more competition comes it's something to always think about even just from a business perspective and so uh, we were just trying to i was just trying to figure out you know who's out there because when you're sitting around waiting you know six seven months past when it was supposed to be released you know you start wondering um And so I think that there's definitely, there's a few people who look like they're coming in and they have experience. Um, You know, I saw people that were connected to companies coming in out of Colorado um, and some different well-known consulting groups. Um, But, you know, for for the most part, I would say, you know, it's, I I don't know that I've 
come across anyone that you know seemed like they were the the, the slam dunk out of the park expert in this area. Um, and more often than not, it just seemed to be a lot of people who really didn't have the cultivation experience, business experience for sure. Some people seem extremely impressive, but as Sal talks about, and I think we all agree, you know, it's it's the cultivator, it's the, the farmer that's really going to make the major difference. Agreed. Gotcha. Um, so before we move on to bigger picture topics, guys, you know, Justine, we're again, we're fucking smoking with a cop right now. I'm joking. He's not a cop anymore. He's not a cop <laughs> anymore. But back in the day, and we'll talk about that stuff. Uh, I'd like to at least. Um, but before we move on to bigger picture topics, I want to just want to give you guys a chance. I'm going to play devil's advocate and I want to give you guys a chance to, I guess, address it. What do you say to the folks out there that are saying, well, of course, we're going to see better product from a craft grower. They have less to tend to. I mean, uh, and by that, I mean, and you can comment. I think you said it's like 5,000 square feet or whatever versus some of these super facilities uh, that you see. Uh, what what's your comment on on that uh, on that well, I guess comment because I've seen it as, out there. As far as some people may have this this uh, this conception a little bit skewed, um, five thousand square feet of flowering canopy is actually quite large. It is quite large. Uh, you know, you call it two hundred to two hundred and fifty lights. I mean, that's pretty large. A company like that should be producing 200, 400 pounds a month. Um, that's pretty, pretty, pretty large on, on, on the grand scheme scheme of things. Um, the fact that some of these other operators are currently operating 250,000 square feet of flowering canopy. Now that is enormous. That is completely enormous. Um, but so... It, Quality-wise, quality-wise, right? The top quality will always be produced indoors, right? The reason being is because these plants are not affected by the outside environments. They're not exposed to the elements, right? The wind, the rain, the heat, etc., right? The indoor quality will always, always, always be the highest. In my opinion, indoor-wise, if you could grow... Let's put it this way. Quality should stay consistent, whether it's a small scale or a large scale, on any scale. Like us, for example, we, we grow medical tents. We grow the 200 light facilities. We grow the light depth 40 by 90 greenhouses. We grow it all. Um, and all that plays into uh, part of our experience that we have. So uh, small scale or large scale, all qualities should be competitive. Regardless if it's a small or a large scale, quality should stay consistent. Yeah, I would yeah. I would add to that for sure, Sal, that I think, uh, and sorry for that, if I cut you off, Justine. Um, no, you're fine. I, I, I would kind of echo off of Sal for sure. I think the other, like my response to, to what you said, Cole, would also be that, um, you know, a lot of these large operators, the, the things by which their decisions are guided are all strictly monetary and, and profit and, you know, creating more revenue and more money for shareholders. And I think that by virtue of that, like the reason we don't see, um, you know, large scale, however we want to choose to define that, um, you know, producing top quality is because the only operators that are doing it right now don't care about producing top quality. They care about making the most amount of money. And so, I think that like 
that's a big part of why we have a push for also people coming in who truly appreciate and care about the industry. And, you know, you know, I think that, um, want to, want to put the best product out there. And like, I think at the end of the day, yeah, that, that of course there's corners that you can cut that allow you to make more money, but these businesses make a lot of money already. And it's like, how, how much do you really need and how much are you willing to sacrifice to degrade the quality of the product to give to consumers and pretend that it's medicine? Um, and so I, I think that that's also another aspect that they would make a difference, you know, of course, is the motivations behind why these decisions are made. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, to take it back to what Sal was saying, the amount of canopy space and the amount like the sheer volume of plants that these people are growing without any experience sounds unmanageable absolutely impossible so um you know for them to now hold back on people like you who are applying for these craft grower license where it's going to be much smaller much more manageable and much more higher quality is just ridiculous it really shows you that people are absolutely more focused on the money than they are about um, bringing really high quality medicine to the medical patients in Illinois. Yeah, in my opinion, it all ties in together, right? I mean, we all know that lines are out the door, right? In Illinois dispensaries, right? Lines are out the door, right? And it doesn't look like the legal side of things, the rec market is having any issues by all means. However, even though we can't see it, everyone knows it, that the black market still thrives. And until, uh, you know, the qualities increase on the rec market, that black market will always be there. It always will. Unless right. somebody could go to the store and buy something better, they're always going to go and get, and get that better product where they can. Right. Yeah. I mean, we've seen a huge gray market rise. I mean, some of, you know, it's, it's, uh, the, and by what I what I mean by that is folks that are our black market, but uh, you know they they take like a they're taking like um, you know an approach like they're buying packaging and everything else, and you know they got a honestly, brand. You I'm, can I'm always see where a, I was about to go legacy. with it. Yeah, yeah, I like legacy providers. Um, but what I was gonna say, what it, what's interesting is what I was about to say. It's like it's basically legacy providers mocking license holders in other words the white people that own the license by putting their packet packaging or putting their product in packaging you know what i mean and it's weird that like the legalized market has almost become synonymous with that you know what i mean i don't know i think like, yeah i think it also shows though that like people who are in the legacy market have the capabilities to do exactly what the people in the legal market are doing yet, absolutely yet they don't get the same chance and yes, so it's right. like, it's like, right. look, we can, we can, we can be, you know, packaging compliant and we can meet these requirements. And, you know, now, I mean, now they even have, the, I know from talking to you and, you know, I think it was one of the labs out there, people can get their product tested. I mean, right. it's just that that's, that's, I mean, that's one of the most upsetting parts about this, in my opinion, is that the talents out there, the, the talent pool and the capability and the ability to, to do this is there. And it's just these people are getting left out that have, it shouldn't be. Right. Agreed. Right. So, um, you know, I guess let's, 
if, if you guys have any other comments, I guess, on that before we move to like big picture topics. And by that, I mean, it's the elephant in the room. Fabian's a fucking cop. <laughs> I keep saying you're a cop, but I just, I'm trying to be funny, guys. I'm trying to be funny. So Fabian, not to like put you on the spot, but can you just, I mean, people heard it at the beginning of the show and they've, if we kind of teased it, can you just tell us about your past in law enforcement and how you came to be an attorney and everything else? Cause I mean, it's, it's interesting. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're now you're looking to get in cannabis. Like that's, that's an intriguing story. So can you just tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, you know, after I graduated from U of I, I, uh, you know, I, I came back home. I, uh, was originally supposed to go straight to law school. Um, and, uh, of course, against my father's better judgment, I, uh, decided to instead apply to police departments and, um, you know, I thought that I knew I, I knew I wanted to go to law school and I thought I actually wanted to practice criminal law. So I told myself, I was like, well, you know, policing would be a good route, do it for a few years, build the experience and then make my transition. Um, and, you know, my, my father was a police officer um, for quite some time. And so I kind of been surrounded by that. But I think, uh, you know, I made that transition. I think I was 22 years old. Um, you know, I, I got into a suburban police department and uh, it was an interesting experience. I was, I think, like one of the first very few minorities in the suburban police department. Um, and it just, it was a, it was a unique opportunity for me. I think it forced me to grow up and recognize, you know, the realities of the world very quickly, especially after coming out of my bubble at U of I. Um, and I think that that was really important for my own personal development. Um, and it was kind of at the beginning and I think at the height of where people were becoming more aware of criminal justice reform and why it was necessary. Um, and, you know, it, it also kind of taught me that at least in my own experience, that if you, you know, you're somebody who tends to be a little bit forward thinking or you want to kind of question, um, and I don't want to say question authority, but question why we're doing a particular um, action when we have discretion to do otherwise. Um, you know, it's, it's a tough environment, um, to survive in when you kind of, I think, think that way. Um, and so I also saw the harsh realities of kind of, you know, being an officer and, you know, trying to kind of speak up or voice on things that, that were issues or problematic. Um, and so over time, just recognizing that for me, continuing in kind of that type of role was not going to be good for my own personal growth and my mental health. And I told myself, I need to kind of get away from this. And I decided to resign and go straight to law school. And, um, you know, I went into law school and I was the policing background had me on this kind of strict paramilitary lifestyle. And so I just adopted that into law school and was fortunate enough that I did really well and, um, you know, got a job at a, a large corporate law firm. Um, and I was their uh, diversity scholar. Um, and so, you know, I had summer associate positions there and it was, it was unbelievable. It was, uh, you know, I remember when I went into law school, this idea of getting into the big corporate law arena, especially as a minority, it's just, it's one of those things that's really hard to do. Um, and so, you know, once I was there, it was an amazing opportunity because I was just learning so much, um, just being surrounded by so many smart people, having opportunities to work on really significant matters, seeing you know, how large companies work and working on projects where they're getting acquired and designing, you know, benefit structures and uh, things for executives. And, um, you know, it was, it was, a, it's really, I think, 
the platform that allowed me to develop the skills that I needed to start doing this cannabis work. Um, and so, you know, eventually I finished with that and, uh, I, I decided to actually make a transition, uh, midway through the pandemic to, uh, move over to a plaintiff side firm. And, um, you know, that, that's been great for me, honestly, it's, uh, it's a different being on the opposite side now, you know, representing people, but I love the work so much more. It's, uh, the large corporate law, the big law arena is, um, it's intense and you work a lot. And I think that's why you develop the experience that you do. But for me, I know that it wasn't conducive to being happy in the grand scheme of things. Um, and in part, that's honestly because I, every time I, I get a little bit older, I reflect on where I am. And I was recently thinking to myself that, you know, I'm 30 years old and I feel like I've kind of just discovered within the last few years, my, my real passion and purpose, you know, I'd gone through all this different levels of education with these ideas that like, you know, I even got a legal master's in employee benefits to specialize in that area. And then as time went on, I found myself kind of still doing that work, but also learning other things and realizing that business um, and, and being a business owner are things I also have aspirations for. And in particular, it's truly in the cannabis scene, in the cannabis industry. And, you know, for me, that realization of, of my passion and what I love to do um, now has just been the fire that ignited in me. Um, and that, you know, I've just, with Sal and I, the way we're working, we will have a license. I have no doubt of that. Um, and so, you know, that that's kind of, I would say, my process throughout, you know, policing, going into law school, and then ultimately what brought me here. Um, and now this is, you know, it's not what I ever intended. I did not honestly think this is what I would be doing um, as an attorney. But, um, you know, with a little bit of luck and preparation, these things have happened. And, um, you know, I absolutely love it. It's, you know, it's so much fun. And it's honestly, it's, I always, whenever I talk to Sal, he's always so happy. And I always uh, tell him that, you know, I, I want to be to that point. And not that I'm not, but where you just, you have this kind of moment where when you go to work, you, you, you're, you know, you're feeling great and you're excited and, um, you know, sales on the farm all the time, tending to his beautiful, you know, flowers. And, uh, you know, I could see why that would put you at ease and why, you know, you know, being able to even just be that into with, with the plants is such a beautiful thing. I just felt Sal like raise his hand and say, let's get it. <laughs> when you said that. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Fabian in, in school and before you were a cop, did you smoke? Like oh, going into it? Yeah, I definitely did. So, yeah. so you talked about discretion. How did you like, was that, let's just make it, this is going to be a big conversation and you know, I, you know, you brought up discretion. I have this idea of like being a good cop and I've talked to some law enforcement officers and sounds like my idea is a crock of shit. Not that it's not a great idea, but that it's not attainable given the system. And can you, can you speak on that? You know? And I mean, I feel like one way you could possibly is, you know, you may, if you ever had to enforce cannabis law, you may have been morally conflicted. Like I'm okay with smoking this, but I got to do what I got to, you know? Okay. So do you have any comments on that? I guess. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think, um, when, when, when I was working as a police officer, one of the biggest things, and, and I, I, I always knew this, especially as someone who had consumed cannabis throughout college, um, that just in my experience as a civilian and as an officer, I just this inherent pattern and, and violent situations oftentimes involving alcohol. 
And, you know, it, it just, it happened so frequently that it didn't take long for me to really think it's like, well, I don't ever in violent, uh, encounter violent situations with people smoking cannabis. Yet, if you look at the way, especially looking years back, the way kind of media portrayed it and the way that a lot of the like, you know, policy and air quotes was trying to frame it, you know, that it was this, this terrible drug that, um, you know, I mean, you know, the crazy history behind all the different types of bullshit sure. they would try to put out there on cannabis. Um, and so for me, you know, I knew right away, it was like, well, most of the time, like even, and I'll give a good example, I was working in the burbs. So encountering kids who were sitting at, at, at the park smoking weed was not an uncommon thing to happen. Um, and, you know, more often than not, you know, I would, you know, kind of just sneak up and walk up on them and, you know, just, oh shit, it's the cops. And everyone would get nervous and, you know, just tell them, listen, you know, I can confiscate this and I can get rid of it or I can issue a citation, which would you prefer? Um, and just have them get out of there. And, and, and that opportunity for discretion, like that came up frequently, the ability to, to say, listen, just go on your way. And, you know, this doesn't have to be an issue because I understand and recognize that people consume this and it's not a reason to, to put them in cuffs and to lock them up. Um, that, that just seems pretty outrageous. And, um, you know, and that, and that came in many forms. It wasn't just in those situations. Um, and, and, you know, the one thing I, I think I loved about it the most was in moments where I utilized that discretion and then you could see how much that made a difference to someone, how much it mattered. And that's all it really takes, right? Is that the ability to have a positive interaction with someone will shape the way they view police for so long going forward. And so, I mean, and, and on that idea, that's why it's so easy to understand why some people have such negative relationships and some people have positive. And there's, of right. course, I think more in-depth reasons as to that. But in my mind, as an officer, I always told myself, I was like, well, I don't know what this person's past history is, but either I can make it a good encounter or I can try to change their mind on previous encounters. And that's really what my outlook was on in every interaction that I had. Right. Now, see that, and that's, you know that's coming from a person that I like, I don't, I don't, I'm not claiming to like know you or anything, but you seem like you're a good person. And I guess the conversation that, you know, uh, like you said, that's kind of like where I would, that's what you're the cop. I would have liked to have been the one that had just had, came up and had those conversations and, and used your discretion in positive ways and thought about the context of who the individual was they were encountering. But like, Let's be honest, that doesn't happen all the time. And, and in, in that in in that regard, I mean, uh, discretion can become very frightening <laughs> depending on who you are. Like, and like you know, because if somebody's if if there's a law enforcement officer that wasn't you, you know, and doesn't apply the same methodologies or like the things that you thought about going into every, you know, interaction, like if somebody's just you know exactly what I'm talking about, the the police brutality and everything else. And so I didn't know, like, what do you think about, like, I've got this idea that, so first of all, I've been told that like systemically being a good cop, like you can definitely use discretion. And like you say, like, you know, make some of these decisions, but like, for the most part, I've found that people have to get out of it because there's some things you like you, that you can't, you know, like if you're called in for backup or whatever else, and I'm not asking you to get anything into anything like that, but I guess, would you agree to with me that like they need to, first of all, rethink training? And by that, I mean, they need to stop like training officers as if 
like every situation somebody's going to kill you like i i had this interaction with a police officer i described in a podcast episode recently where it was a very good interaction it was one of those police that like you're a cop that sounds like i like i would want to been like you this cop like he was very pleasant to deal with he pulled me over for speeding he explained to me why i shouldn't be speeding he was like hey man deer could fucking come out in front of you at any moment there's deer all over in this area and by the way he's like look at the stuff you're shipping like none of that's secured if you if you hit a deer going at the speed i just pulled you over at you would have fucking been beheaded or something he's like man i'm not gonna give you a ticket tonight i want you to realize that and for that reason i was like dude you're a good guy because like you're not just being an asshole pulling me over you know slapping my wrist giving me a ticket you're telling me why you pulled me over you tell me why because i was speeding for a reason you know i wanted to get home but he's like He's like, yeah, but that's not a good enough reason to fucking die. And like for that reason, I was like, dude, you're you. I came away with the fact of the idea that like you're a good guy, you're a good officer. I would, if I was a police officer, that's how I would have handled that. Um, but like you know, I, so at the end of the interaction, I went to shake his hand, and he said, no, sir, I cannot shake your hand. And I, I thought about that for years, and I finally ended up talking to another law enforcement officer about it. It's like, why did this guy, I've thought about this officer for years because like I say, I really, I, I, I really liked the interaction, you know, I was like, that's how you, that's how you're supposed to do it. And I always just marked it weird that he wouldn't shake my hand. And another law enforcement officer commented and said, at least when he went to school, they trained you don't, you know, shake hands, certain things. And they like specifically showed him a video of somebody getting dragged because it was an in- interaction, I guess, kind of like mine where somebody went to shake the officer's hand. I don't know exactly the context of the interaction or anything else, you know, but held onto this officer's hand and drove away, dragging him, which is obviously brutal. Like, and I condemn that, you know, obviously, right. That's just horrible. But like, can you, like, would you agree that like training or do you have any comment on training? Is that, am I coming away with a true assumption that they train people just like everybody's out to kind of kill you? (laughs) Like in how to deal with that. Well, I definitely think, you know, the, the, the situation that you described, I'm going to venture to guess that it was either a state trooper or an officer that was running on a solo, a solo car by himself or herself. Um, and, And so, you know, assuming it was a state trooper, I just also generally know that they tend to operate more intensely because when you're by yourself, your closest backup, depending on where you are, especially if you're a trooper could be 10, 15 minutes away, you don't know. And so, that's why also you, if you've ever noticed, like there's always a difference between getting pulled over by like a city cop versus a state trooper. You know, the, the state trooper walks up, they're very matter of fact, they're pressed perfectly. They always look really fit. The brim of their head is perfectly forward. Um, and I think in part, it's because their training mentality is that you're alone and you don't have backup that likely will get here in time. And so for them, the most dangerous interactions they have are on those unpredictable traffic stops. And I think what you end up have happening is that sometimes people have negative experiences and then that causes them to at least find a verification. And yes, what you are likely taught and shown in training. Like I remember when I went to the Academy, the one phrase I had stuck in my head is that nobody touches the police. You know, you just, you don't do that. You don't allow people to touch you or put hands on you because that creates a vulnerability for you. Um, and of course that's dependent on the situation and the context, but it, it was just a phrase that I remember being echoed in to kind of going to what you said, I had a similar experience as well, where oftentimes you were showing these videos of, um, you know, violent traffic stops or encounters where police officers are getting hurt. And I think it's tough because the police academy, I think from a training perspective, definitely needs to be longer. 
I think that the amount of time you have is not enough. And I think in part because of that, the academy feels like it's very much trying to prepare you for the 2% or 1% of interactions you'll have, the most dangerous ones. Um, it's also trying to prepare you to pass a standardized test. Um, but in part, it's, it's just, it, it doesn't have much time to, to go over really what most of policing is in the day-to-day, -day, um, you know, kind of monotony sometimes and, and the, 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 the communication and the interaction that you have in these situations that don't always start off as threatening or violent or anything of that sort. And I think that's part of the issue, right, is that, you know, it speaks to issues we have probably in hiring practices that, you know, maybe we're hiring individuals who don't have, you know, the, the emotional capacity to, to manage their feelings um, and, and to be able to kind of think proficiently in, in stressful situations and be able to communicate appropriately. And I don't know, I'm not an industrial psychologist, so I don't know what, what are the best ways that we can try to test and try to recognize people with those skills and abilities. But I think that it's a lot easier to teach someone how to shoot a gun or, or, or how to in, enforce the law than it is to teach them how to, how to properly communicate and, and manage their, you know, their, their emotions in such a way that they don't allow people to, to, to agitate them or, or to get them to get to a point where they're abusing discretion. Um, and I think in addition to that, of course, then you just have people who are bad. Um, and, you know, that, that also speaks volumes to better hiring practices that need to be put in place. And I think a big part of that also is I'm, I'm just a big believer that I think we need to reallocate money towards therapy for police officers because, you know, you, you, you suffer these micro traumas every single day that you're on the street that you just, um, you know, compartmentalize and, and put away because, you know, despite the fact that it's, you know, we're in a time where things are more progressive. I think policing is so old school. And so there's still this kind of imbalance between just keeping it inside and not saying anything and seeking the help that you need. And I think that if you don't take time to reflect on these experiences, because we all know it at the end of the day, police inevitably just sometimes encounter people who are bad and people who are breaking the law and um, very, you know, violent, sad situations. And that takes a toll. Um, and if you don't do anything about it, it's just, it's inevitable that, you know, the, the, I think the, the human psyche is, is, is delicate. And if you don't properly address the traumas that it, it has, um, you know, that's, that's how we end up having a lot of the issues that we see. Um, and then toss that in combination with people who are just coming from backgrounds where they, um, you know, they're just straight up racist and, you know, they, they are on a power trip and, that you get people like that too. That definitely happens. Um, yeah, I, I definitely echo that. Like the allocation of mental health and, and like regular mental health checkups. Like I feel like I feel like when you uh, and of course I'm not a law enforcement officer. I just I've talked to I try to talk to you know who I can right <laughs> you know and so I've got family that are in law enforcement and everything else and um, you know one of the things they tell me is like when you kind of get in these circles, sometimes it's not, it's not like a group therapy conversation, like the sense of like alcoholics anonymous. It's like these stories like, all right, we were down and I'm fucking shooting this guy. I've got like three left in the clip. Okay. And it's like, they're talking like about a movie. The war stories. Yeah. And everyone loves to share them. It's uh, it's, it's, you're, you're so right. That's a huge part of the culture. It really is. Um, and it's like, that's, it's almost like that's become a way to, to try and deal with it. 
is by I almost reframing it in their mind as if it's uh, some type of, you know, accolade to, to, to be proud of and, and share when in fact, it's, it's a traumatic moment that, you know, I think that like, maybe depending, you know, on whether or not you've actually had resolution with it, you know, should be talked about in a more serious manner with a professional. But, you know, it's again, back to the culture, it's just, you know, that's how people kind of write these, write these things off. Um, and so it's, it's a tough situation, man. It's, it's, it's really hard. I have these conversations with sure. my dad all the time. And, you know, he's been, he was a former chief of organized crime for Chicago. He was a chief in River Forest, um, chief in New Haven, Connecticut. He's been in a bunch of command positions and we have great conversations on this, but it's just one of the things that I think is challenging is that it's so multifaceted. Um, right. because it's very, yeah, very deep. it's like, it's a training, it's, it's like training, but it's also, you know, every, every, it's like, um, you know, all of this is, is kind of one big wheel, right? It's, it's not just policing. Then there's also the actual criminal justice system and, you know, how, how do things move through this, this apparatus and the fact that it's just layered in riddles, which is kind of implicit bias and institutionalized uh, racist policy. And and these things are very much real. I mean, you, like, if you, start looking at history, you can see literally built into the law, right? The, the things that hurt people who are, you know, people of color. And so I think that the other part too, is that, you know, one of the things that we need to also see more of, I think is just diversity within hiring practices too. Um, because it's, uh, it's just, we need to move so many pieces around and it's just, it doesn't start with just training and it doesn't, it doesn't end, you know, with changing command staff or, or, looking at how to better, um, you know, make sure that people aren't getting put through this kind of prison pipeline. Um, Because I'll tell you one thing that always resonated with me when I was an officer was I really came to the realization when I saw people who would get arrested for a license suspension that would be based off of oftentimes traffic infractions that they failed to pay. Um, because in reality is that sometimes, and we all, we all speed, right? So we all turn on red when we shouldn't. These things are just, we, I don't think anyone is holy to say I've never had a traffic infraction in my entire life, but when it comes with a penalty, sometimes a hundred dollars, you know, we're fortunate. I think that, you know, that's not going to break the bank, but for some people that means no food for the week, or that means less money to pay rent. And I don't know that I could ever fault someone for choosing to provide for their family, perhaps, rather than paying what I honestly believe is to be uh, an infraction system meant to penalize people who are, you know, in lower economic means, um, because then they choose not to pay that. But hey, guess what? They, they, they do delivery, they do Postmates, and they got to keep driving. And, you know, maybe they get one more ticket. And it just, I watch how this leads to like, how do these things, you know, where it's, it's not necessarily a, a crime that's truly hurting people and they get hit with these fines and it gets to the point now where, you know, they're, they're arrested. And it's just, it, it just blew my mind seeing this happen just right in front of me. And also noticing that it seemed to disproportionately affect a certain group of people. It's, you know, it's right there. For sure. Um, yeah. Like you say, it's a super deep, uh, nuanced, uh, topic. Um, like, you know, the things that I were suggesting, like it sounds like an easy formula, but like you already brought up a few other things that I didn't, it's not that I necessarily didn't think of, but I didn't, I guess, explicitly include in my initial like 
you know, description, I was going to say, you know, not only rethink training, but regular mental health, regular training. Like I, I think it's interesting that it's like, sometimes you just get trained once and it's like, all right, you're good. Get out yeah. there. You got your gun. <laughs> you know, like I, it's crazy that like, you know, uh, people that are in special forces and let's be honest, like the 10, 20, we were talking about it the other day, the 10, 22 program, uh, the 11, uh, what was it? Uh, 10, 22, program um oh it's the 1122 program and it's like uh there's another there's another program as well but it's basically the idea that uh the defense department um allows state and uh local government uh access to federal sources um of supply to purchase equipment to support counter drug homeland security and emergency response emergency response activities now this is obviously off of their government website um, what we've seen is that like these uh, police departments will get like a MRAP, for example, which I call a tank, you know, people in the military, of course. And that's another facet to this. A lot of the people in the police are from the military. And, and I've said that that's a tank. And they're like, that's not a tank. It doesn't have a missile on it. And I'm like, oh, but OK, dude, that's a fucking tank. Like, that's a fucking tank. So like, don't tell me that it isn't. And some of this equipment that they have, like, um, it's interesting that like it's like protect and serve, but they're really equipped to like, I mean, we were talking the other day on the podcast about uh, in Portland, uh, they were thinking about using a heat ray on the protesters or a la- uh, what was the other one? It was like this audio device. It's like a gun. You point at a crowd. So they considered either using a heat ray or this other gun. You point at a crowd and it just makes this really loud fucking noise. I can't remember. Oh, it's a LRAD, long range acoustic device. Um, um, and the heat ray was an a active denial system. So they considered using this on uh, like, you know, protesters, which are American citizens. And, and they've, they've not admitted to using these things in wars, but what they have admitted is that uh, like specifically that heat ray um, apparently like it works very well and the consequences are uh, pretty dramatic, like more than they expected. So that sounds scary, right? <laughs> um, anyways, what I'm trying to say is like, um, it's systemic. Would you agree? Like the whole system has to change. Oh yeah. You know, and, and that's why it's such a, that's why it's such a deep conversation. It didn't, this never had, this didn't happen overnight. You know, it's really funny. I just, uh, I had a conversation with my dad where this morning he came over for breakfast and he was just talking about what it was like when he got into the department in the seventies and how, when he initially went to apply, um, you know, they told him there were no applications and he went back with one of his white friends and his, his mother, um, whose husband was a firefighter and they were able to get an application for my dad. Um, because they just, nobody wanted to hire minorities at that time. And, I think there was a consent decree that came out that said they had to start hiring and my dad got on and he told me that when he started, you know, white, white police officers wouldn't share, go into the car with him. Some people wouldn't work with him, didn't get the best training from some FTOs. Um, but there were people who definitely, um, you know, work with him along the way. But just going over what, what, when he talked to me about how like there was just these consistent blockades that he kind of encountered and, um, whether it was getting on the job, getting promoted, staying in his position, all those different things. And I started talking to him about similar experience that I encountered um, just, you know, throughout my careers. And this is, we're talking about, you know, a generation here, yet the issues are still there. Um, And I think that relates to what you said, it being systemic, right? 
it, it, it's not something of the past. It's so ingrained. This didn't happen overnight. It's happened over years and years and years and years and years and years, and years, of, years of wrongs. For sure. For sure. Yeah, that's uh, that's a topic in and of itself that uh, that's crazy. And it's so deep, in fact, that I need to load up some more Han Solo burger. We're going to get – we just cleaned up nice. this bubbler. You want to smoke out of it? Yeah. <laughs> I like the cold the snap. What's that? No, I was saying, how's the burger smoking? How's the flavor? How's the smokeability? Is smoking really nice for you? It smokes really nice. It rolls really it well. It, it hits. It's smooth. It tastes really nice. nice. Um, that's, and that's, an o, that's an OG cross I've always loved because it's potent and the flavor is there. And it's just such a heavy, really nice medicating experience. My favorite thing is the taste and the smell. It, it, yeah. When like I can tell there's one... Uh, there was one day that Justine had came out and sparked a bowl in, in our garage, and I could tell specifically that it was she was smoking Han Solo burger. The smell is just very, very distinct in the air. Um, not only like nice. the flower itself, but like uh, like when it burns and the way it tastes, it's it's amazing. That's the whole part of it. The aromas are really complex, and it just all comes together for a really nice experience. The cold snap is like the first one I had mint, really minty. I didn't mean to cut you off though. So you were saying. Yeah. Oh no. The cold snap is great too. Perfect blend of really minty and kind of gelato turp profiles come together for a really nice flavorful smoke, you know, and same thing, really potent and really nice. The cold, cold snap is nice. Upon ripening, it gets crazy, crazy, crazy purple. Yeah. It's it's such a beautiful plant and uh, such a beautiful end product. The, pur- the purple is like vibrant as fuck and uh it, like i swear it like kind of clears out my nostrils when i when i uh in like when i sniff it like you know i feel the same way it's good stuff so uh, are there I, I i don't mean to put you on the spot are there any other genetics that you're pretty excited to to flex uh i don't like again i'm not asking you like crazy things but i've seen you guys you know publish uh some of the arsenal on on your instagram page so yeah alex Alex, what's coming down next right in the dry room out here in california we have stroopwaffle stroopwaffle's wedding cake crossed with jet fuel gelato we have that hanging right now uh it smells like pineapples and cotton candy and it just came out so purple and beautiful and so really look forward to that one that's next and um another flavor that's also drying is the kitchen sink the kitchen sink is another GMO cross. It's crossed with Sunday Driver, and it's a super purple exotic smoke too. It's and, uh, it's it's so the smell is just so dank, man. It's so the, dank. The name is perfect for it. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> Good shit. Good shit. So those will be coming down next, and uh, pretty soon we'll be dropping our in the spring. We'll be dropping our feminized seed line. In Illinois, right? You're right. You're you're sometimes you're unable to see through the jar, right? Sometimes you're unable to to smell the product you're about to to purchase, right? So you're restricted in a, in in some ways, right? But our theory is always this: our our brand is something that you could put a blindfold on. If you know that you're getting Chicago Kush, you know that you're getting a high end product every single time. It's all that we would ever allow. So even though that these regulations and rules are in place, I want people to be, you know, and once they try our product for the first time, they'll really have the confidence in moving forward into knowing that every time they're getting Chicago Kush, it's going to be an awesome product 
and an awesome experience. So that's that's how we feel about the brand. Hell yeah, dude! That just the, every time, every time I've you know talked to you a few times, Sal, and every time I talk to you, I swear. This dude could be a motivational speaker. He gets me fucking energized. <laughs> like, let's just, fucking go. We, we so, just love our so plants. We just love our plants. You know, we, we, we live amongst our plants morning till night, you know, and it's something that we love to share and to show and to, uh, and to uh, you know, share all those benefits with everyone. Yeah, Cole, Cole what you're hearing there is uh, that's, that's, that's the passion and love, man. That's, <laughs> that's, uh, and that's exactly what you get when you try sales product. And that's, you know, I think that in – in, in, you know, getting to know Sal and then being one of my closest friends, I'll definitely have to say that, like, I think that he truly loves the opportunity to provide the best quality product for, you know, people to try and for him to share it with them so they can too enjoy in this wonderful experience that you have when you use the flower that he grows. Because I think you can speak firsthand to it, Cole. I mean, I don't know about you. I feel great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I was literally just about to say, I can attest. I can that attest. is truly I'm what it's about. down on it right now. It is truly what it's about. We don't do this. I don't do this for the money, you know. I mean, we've been through so many hardships and uh, avoided uh, so many different problems, you know, going to jail and and uh, avoided so many different things that we. I don't even do it for the money anymore. I do it um, because um, it, it gives me an opportunity to really, really provide uh, some extraordinary happiness for a lot of people, and uh, that's what motivates me every single day, you know. To, to grow these plants morning till night it's because I want everyone to be able to enjoy this. That's what it's all about. Cannabis yeah. is a medicine. It's a medicine. It's an intended to make you feel good. And so that's what I want to spread out there. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're doing a, you're going to do great in this market for sure. Cause we have a lot of people who are, well, hopefully he's been doing it for 10 years. Well, yeah. Yeah, of course. And I think the OG it's, market. it's what we need here in Illinois for sure. So, um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Sal, just can you tell me maybe some of the craziest uh, stories that maybe you've ever heard or experienced? Because you, you, 10 years, it's been on for a while. And you, like you said, it's been a long ride. Uh, shit can hit the fan quickly. Uh, it wasn't really until the Cole memo. Hey, Oh, Hey, Oh, <laughs> uh, sorry. Uh, I, it, it, which has since been rescinded, but look it up. It's basically the idea. It, it's not named after me at all. Uh, but it's, uh, Fabian, correct me if I'm wrong. It's the idea that if you comply to these standards within your state and a few of them is like, you know, you're not selling to minors, you're not, uh, you know, going like, across state and everything else like we're not going to raid your grow like type of thing and so uh, that's since been rescinded which it's crazy because the trump administration has like held up on it they'll be like now we're they've actually like i mean he's made comments all over the board but um well in every which way and fuck him but anyways uh <laughs> sorry um like I guess what I'm trying to say is, I guess, you know, there's still some raids going on to this day for, but for the most part, I, uh, from what I understand, they're like operating under the guise of that coal memo, even though it's not still, like I say, uh, like official policy at this point. Um, can you tell us, sorry, I'm ranting uh, and just like trying to share a little bit of knowledge for people to look up and stuff too. Uh, can you tell us anything crazy that's happened over the years, you know, or the, the journey, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, from 
from A to Z, dealing with thieves, dealing with partners, dealing with the legalization process, dealing with, uh, with city leaders and, 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 and just, there's just so, so, so many crazy different things that have, have, have come across my path during this time. Um, I've had, you know, I have some really crazy stuff. I mean, I could just go on, you know, cultivating in the medical days for our store, um, it would be once or twice a week. Twice a week, uh, I would see police trying to literally rip my door down. You know, having an idea that something may be going on in the inside, but I guess no probable cause technically, or no warrant. But um, literally, uh, I've had to deal with the the police. Literally, try to rip my doors down. Um, and uh, you know, I could just I could just go on. You know, the 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 different. The crazy, the crazy things that I've seen, um, you know. But in light of all the in, in, of all the of the crazy things that I have seen, uh, all the negative the negative side of it, there's been so many positives that I have seen too. Like when I when I was the GM of LEXCC, um, it it was just be it, it was just so so just so heartwarming uh, to see that this medicine that I provided to a lot of my patients, how happy it made them, and. Um, how it, it contributed to their, their, their health and how good it made them feel. You know, when I would have patients come in on wheelchairs, you know, um, literally, and said that this medicine was the greatest thing and it, it made their life uh, being worth living. Um, it just brought me so, so much joy to be a part of it. And I, I just really want to continue that on, but we have seen the craziest of the craziest. To tell you the truth, the craziest thing I've ever seen is the fact that these large multi-state multi operators have been given the opportunity to control entire markets. Of all the things I have seen, that to me is the craziest. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a business plan. It's, uh, I mean, I think somebody, I don't know if it's GTI, Justine, if you can remember from a show we talked about it, somebody said their plan is limited license like they like states that are limited li limited license they're sorry i'm fucking high because they got no competition That's bingo why. high population uh -huh. so in other words they got yeah like you say no competition but high population to supply to and then the other key is high tourism uh chicago illinois checks all those boxes and that's why you see the most dispensaries uh kind of concentrated there um, because it's a tourism uh, hub, so to say, you know, probably pre-COVID more accurate, but but still so. Um, I mean, business, is, business goes on right in Chicago. So, um, but uh, it's interesting. You see uh, these MSOs uh, going into other states like New York, for example, and New Jersey and Pennsylvania. And there, I've seen people actually call it the new Illinois <laughs> they're yeah. like yeah let's fucking go no competition we yep. we set the prices 80 dollar rates i think maryland yep. is one of those yeah yep. and, 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 and on top of that they're shaping the policy there without a doubt i mean they have teams of lobbyists that are on the ground getting into the ears of different representatives you know doing what they did in illinois i mean that's that's like one of the unfortunate realities right is that it's 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 built into our political process that like this this is kind of how policy can be shaped and so of course these companies with hundreds of billions of dollars millions of dollars are not they're not putting it into making better product they're putting it into their lobbyist team for sure to make sure that they can they can get laws 
you know, drafted and changed in ways that are favorable to them. That's, um, that's hilarious. You say that. Cause like one of the other quotes I remember reading is that just to reaffirm what you just said is they said, uh, you know, for social equity, they're like, they were like, yeah, Illinois has been a model for social equity. So we're going to do it the same way basically. And it's just like, no, it hasn't. If you know anything about the way social, the, the quote unquote social equity is going in Illinois, nothing's been issued. Nothing. Nobody's operating. And so for you to say that that's like honorable, well, that's indicative. I guess that shows what you, anyways, sorry. I, I just wanted to reaffirm kind of what you were saying with another quote that I remembered. Go, go on. No, I mean, it's, 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 it's really true. And, and it's like, also, I don't know. It's like when you start looking at it too, and you, you know, start wondering, okay, like even for the companies that were existing to get into the rec space that were medical already, like that, that process, um, there really was never anything built into it to try to consider social equity in any way whatsoever. And so it was, you know, by virtue of that designed to allow wealthy people, because you have to have, you know, be able to prove, have a proof of funds of a pretty large amount to apply. So you have these high network people who started going after these licenses and, and then these large companies that came in, came in and slowly bought them up. Um, and so it's just, it's a little bit, I think, in my mind, you know, when we were talking about things like um, packaging, like, you know, some places allow you to see what the product looked like. Um, and maybe that would be nice, you know, for just consumers to have more confidence in what they're buying if they could see it. Um, and maybe that's an issue that we really think is important, you know, in addition to how we plan to run the business, we also plan to make sure we're putting money towards policy that's going to benefit not just us, but also those trying to come into the industry and hopefully also make changes with the industry that are more beneficial for, you know, the consumers. And, um, you know, that would be an example where, you know, we would take a playbook out of what these big companies are doing. Um, it, it, and it's tough because it's like, it's, it's annoying to me that this is the system that we have to play in, but it's also, it's like, well, if we want to try to effectuate some change, maybe we, we just gotta, we gotta do it this way for now. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, Justine, do you remember when we went to a conference one time of a lot of folks that were looking to invest in the Illinois, um, market and, um, they all kind of like, were like ooing and awing over the, <clears throat> what they were referring to the pros of prepackaged product for example and they were talking about this guy had operated in multiple states and he was like you know open products great uh in the sense that you can look at it but let's be honest when we're talking and, and this is wraps back around to what you guys were talking about let's he's like let's talk dollars and um he's like when you have you know, when you're selling pounds of product and you send it to a dispensary and it's not pre-packaged, you know, some of it can, and we, we know this, Sal, I mean, you, you know, this, it, when it's pulled and um, it kind of shifts around and goes in different eights, like some of it can go airborne and et cetera, et cetera. You know, you lose some or whatever else. There's also a little bit of liability um, on the part of the staff, you know, if, they, they got to be careful to like throw it, make sure it lands into the other package. And uh, they, you know, there's liability in the terms that hopefully they don't steal because it's, you know, you're dispensing it or whatever, but it's interesting. Like I say, but to wrap back around to one of the topics you guys are talked about, you guys were talking about, it's not about like the consumer, it's about the bottom dollar. So they were talking about all the pros of having it prepackaged. So you don't got to worry about any of that weighing out and dropping the product shit. Like we got it packaged up and ready to go. 
the the consumer is not going to be able to see or smell it and so you can just basically sell it <laughs> that all rhymed but uh uh you know you, you don't really have to worry about a lot of repercussions when you've got like a limited licensing approach um and yep. then also like yeah sorry go ahead you get isn't it interesting that that's they were like pitching that as the pros when it should be about the consumer like I don't know about you, but guys, but when I look and see a product and smell it, it's like really indicative of my, like that's really goes into my decision is what I'm trying to say. No, hundred percent. Like for example, some of these MSOs, believe it or not, have already been clients of mine here in California. And I have looked and seen how they've done in a very competitive market like California. And they do terrible. They are pretty much out of business in these large markets here. The MSOs that also operate in Illinois, uh, they have failed miserably in California. Uh, and it's just the reason because of the competition. So it does make sense. They want to go into these new markets where they control where they, where they control it and where they don't have any competition. Right. I mean, I, I like I say, um, if I was in like maybe a privileged position and didn't have blinders on and everything else, I, I – I'm not saying I wouldn't do the same thing. Think about it. It's, it's a free, free market for you. You know, I can see the, uh, I can see why they're, you know, doing it and stuff, but that's, uh, that doesn't mean it, it's right. Right. Oh, yeah, it's so, not it's right. Like no. Business no brainer. Right. But yeah, it's, exactly. It's, but it's more than a, it, it should take into consideration more than just, um, just the perspective of business. Sure. Right. Exactly. That, that you're able to raise funds via shareholders. Yeah, it's a different environment, I'm sure, totally, because, you know, we don't have to get into the grains of it. And we are technically, you know, at the top top of our time slot. If you guys are, you know, able to go, we can keep going or we can wrap up the show. But, you know, just to quickly comment, you know, like that's there's a lot of comments from people in the industry. And we've had some of them on our show that that kind of say that, you know, the environment is not worker friendly i mean there's a lot of dispensaries that still to this day refuse to do curbside or had to done curbside for a while but apparently for them the pandemic's over uh, and it has been for a while because they stopped doing curbside you know and i know this isn't anything within your guys's control you, you're just gonna be growing it you know but uh <laughs> um it's just uh you know, and that just a comment on the current state of the industry, at least from a few people we've heard, you, you know, you can consider it anecdotal, but um, they've, they've got pretty good organizing efforts like Daniel Corral, which um, we've had on the show. So um, yeah, uh, just wanted to kind of mirror what you're saying. Like, I don't even know what I'm trying to say at this point. I'm high. So <laughs> how are you guys feeling? How are you guys feeling? I feel amazing. Yeah, I'm feeling, feeling very good. We smoking on anything? Yeah, great. yeah, I just I was just smoking some uh Shimans. Ooh. Nice. nice. What phenotype? What pheno are you smoking on, my friend? I believe it I think it was oh maybe let's see. Ten. Nice, Fabian. S- smoking on the, the Shine Mints number ten, which is a really, really nice phenotype. Uh that was personally bred in-house. Um, we selected that actually that cold snap that you are smoking on Cole. believe it or not, that was the female that we used in breeding the shimans. That cold snap was crossed to our Cushman F2 male. 
that was full of vigor and just such a stud of a male um, that we really knew that crossing these two plants would result in such uh, amazing offspring. And um, after testing, testing 100 phenotypes the, thus far, we have discovered that the two and the 10 are just so remarkable. The two having uh, tons of purple in it with a heavy sherb nose and the 10 having a bit of purple, but a crazy minty profile to it, real complex minty aromas and, and taste. Um, that's what makes the difference between the two phenos. They're very different. And so uh, those are the two that are in production right now. And when we go come to Chicago, we have a thousand beans in reserve. And we're gonna do a thousand seed hunt of the shiment. And uh, we're gonna select another phenotype on our home soil. And we're really, really excited about that. Hold on, Sal, that's a good conversation. Those are, that's, you just said a whole lot of words that people don't ever say in the Illinois cannabis industry. You said phenotype, variety. Um, can, we, can we have a discussion about that? Because what we, oh, we I'd you know, people just talk about strain, strains, and fucking, uh, you know, whether it's sativa, hybrid, or indica, you know, let's let's get into some of this stuff if you if you can. Well, the reason, one of the reasons why our product is so good and our genetics are are are, are really special and rare is because, well, we do our own breeding, right? Our own selective breeding, right? I mean, we've had a, a variety of of genetics that we have acquired over the last decade that we've been here. Some genetics that have been gifted to me by underground growers that no one has ever even heard of. Um, these MSO, MSOs would never have access to anything that we've ever had access to. And the only way we, we, we acquired this was from being boots on the floor and being in, in the game so early on. But when we do our selection of our genetics, for example, the Shimans, the Shimans was bred by us. We did it. Uh, we, we bred that plant for certain characteristics, obviously, right? And so when we do our, our, our breeding and our phenol hunting, regardless if we bred that plant or if a friend bred that plant uh, or a different genetics company bred that plant, we'll do a rigorous hunt and test hundreds of seeds to find a very, very special phenotype. So... The MSOs and these other growers, right? Many other growers, right? They'll buy one seed pack online. They'll get their 10 beans, their 12 beans of whatever they want to grow, right? And then they'll take any one of those females and then they'll put it into production like it's something amazing. But it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You're not going to buy one pack of seeds and you're going to find your Michael Jordan. It doesn't work that way. It takes it takes uh, it takes lengthy, rigorous testing to find these true winners, and that's part of our process. That process sounds exhausting and fun. Yes, you and, just I'm need gonna to do and when you guys come to Chicago, I'm going to join your cultivation staff. Please joking. do. We'd love we'd love to have <laughs> so, you. We'd have a blast. Absolutely. Hell yeah! But uh, you know, uh, just to kind of uh, hard switch of topics, and folks that saw this in, in the description of the podcast, I apologize if you've been waiting for us to talk about this. But Fabian, do you have any comments on um, what you described before the show? Is uh, omnibus bill that has to do with cannabis? I believe GrownIn.com reported on it, folks. If you're trying to read a little bit about it, it was uh, earlier 
either this week or last week. So I don't know, you know, like if things have changed since then, but what, what is your impression now? I know you said you like to return and kind of continually reread it because these things are very, well, they're, you know, it's a, it's a big thing, right? And so it's law in other words too. So what are your initial thoughts or what are, what are at least your thoughts now on, on this bill and what is it? Um, well, as of now, so I, I have, I have gone through it and, you know, I think that it's, it's, it's an attempt to try to fix, you know, the issues that we're seeing from the first round of license uh, winners being announced. And so it's kind of creating a, a light, a, a lottery set. So it's going to be a one A and a one B and the individuals, the 21 tied applicants with perfect scores will all participate in the one A and everybody else, um, who applied and meets a certain scoring threshold, which I believe is 80% will be allowed to enter into the second lottery with an additional 75 licenses that will be released. Um, I think thus kind of giving people the opportunity to feel like the process was flawed and they were wronged, uh, you know, a chance to be able to still compete in getting a license. Um, and so, and they don't have to, you know, pay another application for anything like that to be in this uh, second you know, kind of this 1B licensing round. Um, and so, you know, what else? Something that I noticed, um, they announced that they're going to release the applications for the second round of craft cultivation in November of this year. Um, and I jokingly told Sal, so, you know, at least we know sometime before November, we'll find out about craft cultivation. <laughs> but uh, hopefully, hopefully it's not that long. <laughs> yeah, um, hopefully. Yeah, and, 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 and there was a series of other things as it relates to the medical cannabis program and dealing with issues with, I think, like agent identification um, and, and stuff like that. But I mean, so far, it, it, I, what, the one thing is, I've, so I've, read, I've read this bill enough to know- Do you have the bill tried. number? It is- I can pull it up. And uh, HB3959. Cool. Um, yeah. I think it may. Oh well, that's not the right one. Child Protective Investigator. So, folks, when you look up HB three nine five nine, it might not be the first result. Um, twenty. Yeah, you make sure it's in the twenty twenty session, not in twenty nineteen, right? Twenty twenty one. Twenty twenty one. I'm high. I'm sorry. Um, so let's see. Yeah, it's an amendment to House Bill three nine five nine. It was filed on the eighth by Christina Castro. Saturday, Christina, Christina Castro. Cool. Thanks. I think I may have found it. Cool. Um, yeah. yeah. What, so uh, it's, is it mainly focused on dispensary licensing though? Like you say, yeah. it doesn't really say much about craft. No, it's primarily focused on trying to create this second round of licensing. It also said that, you know, that if you were a winner in, you know, one of the tight applicants that are going to be in the 1A lottery, then you can't be in the 1B lottery. Um, things like that. I, as far as I understand, it's still going to be having the reissuance of the deficiency process yeah. to allow people to correct their score. But um, you know, I think that I I, I still want to just go through it because part of part of the process for me too is just also thinking like, well, how can how can I manipulate this? <laughs> I mean, that's sure. it's, it's bad. It's unfortunate that that has to be kind of the way that you go about, you know, trying to kind of go through these exercises to make sure that the fair process remains intact. But it's like, that's kind of what 
I think people and by people, I mean, lawyers are likely doing is what, what's, you know, what's the gray area that we can operate in. Yeah. Well, and I mean, to, we, to give an example, like that we've talked about with Mike Fouché um, is like uh, the law didn't necessarily say that um, you couldn't work for the scoring company, <laughs> you know, like um, for, for at least the, dispense like kpmg the people that are scoring uh those companies at least originally it didn't say you know like anything like that's a pretty big conflict of interest and on one person's uh application they found that there was like an employee of kpmg now whether or not they were scoring is another question but i think another thing they're bringing up with kpmg is like um the people that like just in general, the people that were scoring, I, I guess the qualifications weren't like um, what you might expect uh, for folks that would be scoring to, for just put it bluntly, um, listen back to our episode with Mike Fouché. We kind of get it. He gets into it better. I think from a more uh, informed perspective, I'm not going to try to speculate right now. Um, but yeah. Um, Sorry, I kind of lost where I was going in the middle of that. You got, you guys get where I was going. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. For sure. Yeah. Um, so I guess one of the other things in this new cannabis bill that at least I've heard of is the fact that medical cannabis patients um, may not have to uh, register like online at a dispensary. They can just go to any medical dispensary key, any medical dispensary um, and show their card and go inside and shop um, yeah I saw, I saw that in there i think it's fucking stupid that we can't shop at adult use dispensaries and and get medical uh you know the medical price like what the fuck's up with that and i'm not saying that doesn't happen in colorado i mean that happens for sure i mean like but but for the most part every dispensary is recreational and medical like there's always two counters you know and I have, what I mean by that is I've accidentally gone to a dispensary that was only medical and they're like, Oh, you can't come here. And I was like, Oh, my bad. But, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's some bullshit that, and there's no like slated plans to expand that at all. You know, uh, there's no plans to have any more medical cannabis dispensaries at this time. It's all, uh, and I'm like, fine. I like, I'm totally for these these uh dispensary license going out i mean one of our friends mike malcolm has his hat in the ring and he needs to have a shop you know oh, yeah. um and, and several of the other people that have their hat in the rings they deserve their uh place in the industry and they deserve to be able to have a shop on the corner you know or wherever it's at like they, like they deserve that there's no reason they should have had it by now it's a damn shame that they don't but anyways yeah, um, it's I'm a disservice to the industry yeah for sure so remind our folks where we can find you guys online. I know it's at chicago.cush on Instagram. Do you guys like are anywhere else we can find you online? Uh, like online. Uh, well, our store is being built right now. We got a bunch of merch and some really cool ancillary stuff like glow trays and grinders and a bunch of cool, cool stuff dropping right now. But the website is under construction. Honestly, the best place to find us would definitely be on chicago.cush's Instagram, chicago.cush. Cool. Sweet. Um, Justine, you feeling it, huh? Feeling that? You feeling that weed? Is it hitting you hard? Yes. <laughs> Been kind of quiet. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I'm just... Uh, just vibing? Yep. 
just hanging out chilling <laughs> cool well well as long as it's a good vibe that's that's cool with us right yeah. you know so oh, yeah cool well guys it's uh to speak with you do you guys have anything else uh, that, that before we go though that you'd like to specifically talk about or say or uh, anything else before we depart um, I guess my, my parting words would be that you know we 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 really believe that uh, if, if given the opportunity to have this license that you know we will be able to hopefully I think make a positive impact on the cannabis community. I, I, you know, we are, we are social equity applicants. We, we believe that coming into this industry requires us, requires us to take a responsibility for improving it because it's not at the best state that it could be in. Um, And, you know, I think that um, it's going to happen. I know we just, we have the passion and, you know, Sal has the passion and, we, we want this and it's, it's much bigger than, you know, making some money. It's, it's about kind of trying to build and create, um, you know, I think a legacy and, and something that can be shared by, by everyone. Um, and I know that with, with Sal on this team, there's, there's no doubt that, that that's going to be possible because he, he truly is phenomenal at what he does. And, um, you know, I, I say that not just as a friend, but as just, you know, as, as a partner and, someone who's just a big fan of cannabis and has tried a lot of different product. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited. We want Illinois to be known for some of the best product in the world, not the worst. And we're here to make a change for that reason. And for the betterment of the lives of the indivi- individuals of the state, like Fabian had mentioned for all of our lives. Right. They do good on you to come home. Right. So, Want to come away home? from Chicago for 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 a little while? Over two yeah. very 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 long time. Cool. Want to get back to life now? Well, let's get the Illinois Department of Ag to uh, release the, to release these licenses and um, you know do it the right way and get this thing rolling because this is this is ridiculous. You know, it's way past due and uh, yeah. I mean, like you said, it, it's by design for sure but it's like enough is enough you know i'm looking forward to seeing your product on the shelf for sure definitely everybody is everybody is i can tell you that much (laughs) thank you and we really appreciate the support big time too absolutely i appreciate you guys coming on uh taking so much time out of your day sal i know you got a busy schedule and stuff and and fabian you too so um again thank you for setting aside the time and you're welcome uh on this show anytime guys you got you got my uh, line you reach out um and come on and talk about exciting things that are that are happening and, and we'd be willing to have you you know um so so anytime you know this is a platform uh that we try to provide we for, can do for a celebratory Anyt- license uh podcast yeah. when you that would be lit one that would be lit cole, cole anytime you want to have us man Give us Hell the yeah. call any, any Oh, time. I'll definitely reach out. I'm definitely going to reach out, but like I say, mean? it goes anytime. it goes the same way. It goes the same way. Like Thank if, you. if I'm not reaching out and you guys have something exciting that pops up, like let's say like it's like f- 3 days from now, you guys hear something really exciting, reach out and we'll fucking line something up, you know? I, I anything cuz awesome. cuz uh, you know, it goes both ways. If I if I don't hear from you, uh or if, if you don't hear from me, I expect to hear from you and, and you're going to hear from me. So for sure. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. 
Awesome. We really, we really like to be very helpful and be a, be a big part of the cannabis community here. And anytime really anyone from this cannabis, this Illinois cannabis community wants to reach out or needs that, you know, we're always, uh, always willing to be a big part of the community and be very helpful in that, in that matter. Hell yeah. Well, again, appreciate your time and, uh, Chillinois, uh, cheers. It's been a good one. Mm -hmm. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Cheers.